Shock Monkey Radio is entertainment for adults, by adults, and the views and opinions expressed here do not reflect upon the sponsors or FXBG Public Radio. For additional information, please refer to the United States Bill of Rights. Stand warned. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Shock Monkey Radio. Oh, we're rusty. We're rusty again. It's been a while since we've, uh, we've been doing the show, so we're rusty again. It's a perishable skill, ladies and gentlemen. you got to keep at it. you got to keep working those muscles. Uh, so I went on vacation. That's where I've been. Thanks for asking. I didn't tell you because I can't deal with the relentless American paparazzi. So I went to a lake house with a bunch of contemporary friends. Uh, I got irradiated on like one side of my arm because uh, there was only one other smoker and I rode in his car so we could smoke uh, on the drive. And so the windows were down the entire time. So I had one arm out the window, and so, like, one arm got irradiated, and for the rest of the week, I couldn't stand the sun because all of a sudden, one arm would just start hurting. <laughs> anyway, we did some fishing at the lake house. It wasn't a great time for lures, which is, like, how I, how I like to fish. <clears throat> uh, the lake was low, and the heat was beating down, so it got lower while we were there. <clears throat> a lot of underbrush, a lot of stuff living under, the, a lot of plant life under the water. <laughs> Um, but with live bait, you always get plenty of sunfish or perch or panfish or bluegill, whatever you call them, because this is the kind of arguments you get into. It's, see, I've I, I fished all up and down the east coast of the United States. And, you know, perch, I've never, uh, I've never called bluegill perch. I've never heard anyone call bluegill perch. Anyway, so. <laughs> uh, so there, and there were plenty of largemouth bass, but there weren't any large, largemouth bass. So, but they were in there. So, uh, it's a good. I hear people like call those bluegill like crappy too. That's weird. Anyway, I don't know. Uh, so it's it's good to go and catch a, a few fish every year to, just to make sure you could, in a pinch, which is the only circumstance in which I would eat a fish. And I just like putting a metal hook through their head and throwing them back and playing again. <laughs> Sadistic. So, um, yeah. So uh, I guess I guess I kind of need more practice cleaning fish it's been a long long time since i've done that but it was a catch and release place and i'm, I'm always down for catch and release uh which is interesting when it's, it's catching and eating them it, se it seems to make more sense than catch and release more humane <laughs> you know what i mean anyway so as you might expect with a bunch of 40 somethings after two nights at the lake house there's people start saying things like oh the bed is messing with my back oh my back or i forgot my meds at home I thought I could make it, but I'm starting to feel weird. So few of them decided to bail halfway through the week. And so the rest of us went to a restaurant called The Fish and Pig, as in a swine reeling in a catfish. And those who ate the catfish said that the catfish was quality. I had mac and cheese and barbecue pork and barked and barfed two hours later, but I've been smoking and drinking all day. That's on me. I almost went blind. Playing board games. And that was the highlight of my, va my vacay. Axis and Allies, Azul, Settlers of Catan, Zia or Zaya, however you pronounce it. And yes, even the awful Galaxy Truckers. I'm 40 plus like all the rest of them. But I did not take as many naps as often as my temporary roommates did. But I've never been known for sleeping well on a couch. There were lavish, lavish breakfasts and dinners. It's all men, so it's mostly meat, even though someone made pasta salad. I won't put them on blast, but someone, but yes, it is a him. That guy made pasta salad. Anyway, other than that, it was mostly sausages and brats and charred hamburgers and fire-roasted hot dogs with cheese inside of them. And yes, we had a fire pit, fire so warm and night so cool that you could fall asleep in the zero-gravity chairs all night long, waking you at dawn, motivated for fishing or making breakfast. All in all, it was a wonderfully nerdy vacation, and I had a pretty good time, so thanks to all my friends for letting a madman like me hang around. So I want to talk to you a little bit about fxbgpublicradio.com. Now, if you go to fxbgpublicradio.com and you click the watch tab, you can see um, if, if you're driving or don't, you know, don't play with the internet while you're driving, okay? Do, do this later if you're driving or something. I understand, you know, you're on the treadmill. Don't do it right now. 
But if you go to uh, FXBG Public Radio and you are able to do it right now, you can see that our show is under the Watch tab. If you click Watch, uh, you'll see the video thing. You hit Play, and then it'll show you the live video. And so the live video is now being relayed through the magic of the Internet onto fxbgpublicradio.com. The video quality isn't as good as the video quality that you will find on my, on my uh, YouTube channel, though. Shock Monkey Radio YouTube. And so you can check it out there as well. But, you know, you can start, you're going to be able, you're going to be starting to see a bunch more stuff, much more content under the watch tab of fxbgpublicradio.com. So I advise you to go, go over there, see what we're up to. There's also other tabs where you can book FXBG Public Radio. You can book one of our two, maybe three studios, maybe, maybe. Maybe you can book one of our studios. You can book EK the DJ for events, whether it's your wedding or your bar mitzvah. You do bar mitzvahs? Yeah. Do they have like playlists for bar mitzvahs that you can download? Do you have something like that ready? If somebody booked a bar mitzvah today, do you think you could like for like right after the show, do you think you could do it? You could pull together a bar mitzvah playlist? Okay. All right. I imagine there's a little bit of crossover. Anyway, so I want to invite you to go over to fxbgpublicradio.com and just explore, just start clicking around, look at, look at what, uh, what options are available. And uh, if you like my content, you can go over to Shock Monkey Radio on YouTube, like I mentioned earlier. You can also go over to patreon.com slash shockmonkeyradio, become a patron, help keep this ass in business. And I would appreciate that, absolutely. If you, if you have a cash app, you can use the cash tag shockmonkeyradio, and you can send me money through cash app. The motherfucking cash app, as Joe, Re- Joe Rogan used to say. I don't watch Joe Rogan anymore. Do you? E.K. says that he never did. <clears throat> I only watched when he had guests that I wanted to see, like Gavin McInnes or something like that. Yeah, a lot of people, a lot of people did that. It's like if there's somebody I don't care about, and I, oh, it's uh, Whitney Cummings again. <laughs> you know, <laughs> sorry. No offense to Whitney Cummings. I think she's great, but uh, uh, that that robotic doll thing she's got, that real doll of herself, that's f- fucking odd. Anyway, <laughs> just a little bit of shameless self promotion to remind you to go over to Patreon.com/slash/ShockMonkeyRadio to support us. I also have books available on Amazon.com. Search for the author Scott L. Robbins with two T's and two B's. Buy my books. I would appreciate it. Speaking of books, I finished The Death of Cool while I'm on vacation. This is Death of Cool by Gavin McInnes. Now, the sad thing about reading this book is that I've also listened to hundreds of hours of Gavin McInnes' podcasts. So like 90% of everything that's in this book, I've heard before. And that's my fault. I suppose that's my fault. Uh, there's a couple stories in there that I, I, uh, I haven't heard before. One of them is like, uh, hey, if you take a little dab of honey, put it at the end of your dick. If you're expecting fellatio that later that night, you know, just a little something on there on the end of your dick. So like when so she'll something that'll make a girl look up and say, nice try. You know, you can't make dick taste better. Fair enough. But I think that's a nifty little trick just to just to play a joke on your girlfriend. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's kind of a, a funny thing. The other. The other story that I thought was really hilarious, and as soon as I read it, I came and I told everybody, everybody about it. This story I read. So Gavin went on vacation with his family, uh, like I think down to Cuba, I want to say. And so it's, it's him and his parents and his little brother. And so he's a teenager at this point, and so he's wanting to talk to all the girls and stuff like that, but his brother's tag- tagging along. You know the drill. Anyway, so he starts, like, chatting up this one girl, and, of course, every girl that uh, Gavin's ever hooked up with is the most beautiful woman that ever existed. Anyway, and the book's full of stuff like that. It's like, oh, I only fuck hot chicks. It's like, whatever. And so uh, um, she's the most beautiful woman he's ever seen, you know, and he's, he's talking to her. And so to, like, create some sort of uh, subject to talk about, he starts saying that he points to his parents and says, that's my, that's my uh, dad and my stepmom. And we don't like her. Just take, uh, saying to his brother, "Play along, play along." We don't like her because uh, she's our stepmom. She play and she tries to insert herself into our our uh, family memories. She's like, "Oh, Gavin, I remember your, I remember your ninth birthday. I remember your." And it's like you weren't there. You weren't even around then, you know. And she's trying to insert herself. It's just something to talk talk about to this girl, right? He just makes up this lie about his mother being his actual stepmother. And so for a couple of days, you know, he's hanging out with his little brother, his brother, little brother's tagging along, and he's 
Gavin's like, hey, you got to play along with this. That's our stepmom, and she's, you know, she's kind of a bitch. We don't like her, you know, and stuff like that. And so, uh, after a couple of days, uh, his little brother comes to him, comes to Gavin, and he says, "Gavin, I can't do this anymore. I can't, I can't live this lie anymore." And he's like, "Why? Why? Why? You're gonna blow up my spot. I'm trying to get with this chick." He goes, "Well, uh, mom asked me to do something yesterday, and I just sat there and I thought, man." Fuck that bitch. <laughs> in his head, you know, he got so into the character, so in, so into the role that uh, he started to believe it himself. And, you know, sometimes a kid is too young for that kind of uh, ex- extensive role play. You know, not, not not he's not yet ready for Dungeons and Dragons. And I think that that's a hilarious story that I, I'd never heard on this podcast. And it was certainly worth reading. It's certainly, certainly re- worth reading that book for. Anyway, but Gavin is not a good writer. Uh, he's somewhat funny, um, but he's not great. He's not a great writer. And so no wonder he moved over to podcasts. Writing is not like talking. And Gavin writes like he talks. All right. All in all, it's a pretty entertaining book. Eight of 13 stars. But who am I to rate the quality of Gonzo type stream of consciousness writing? Because <laughs> that's pretty much my ravings of a madman book. <laughs> Available for digital download on Amazon.com. Search for the author Scott L. Robbins with two T's and two B's. Anyway, um, I was I was looking at Bo Burnham's new stuff, and uh, I'm not impressed. Uh, White Woman's Instagram is kind of good, but generally... His new stuff's not good. Look, anyone who has talked to me about Bo Burnham knows that I have been concerned about his mental health. It's there. His battle with depression is buried within his comedy and talent. Sometimes he's quite explicit about it. Now, obviously, I have a tremendous respect for the talent of Bo Burnham and appreciate the the way he makes fun of suicide, sadness, depression, and social anxiety. Because it rings my particular bell. It harmonizes with my life, you understand? I've dealt with depression all my life. And I'm happy. I've been lucky that I found a treatment for my depression. And I've noticed how much that matters to me, despite the COVID, the lockdowns, and the masks, all the crazy shit going on in the world. And I've been doing quite well while depression and suicide have been climbing during all of this. And I have to count myself lucky. All I am saying is that I would like Bo Burnham to try the medications I'm taking if nothing else has worked for him. Now, I want to read you the lyrics of my favorite Bo Burnham song because it captures everything I'm I'm talking about. It captures everything that I'm talking about when it comes to Bo Burnham. Uh, it's, uh, It's a song called Sad. This first song is called, uh, this, this first song is a song called A World on Fire. Ah! Ah! Okay, it's the next song. It's a little bit longer than that one, and it's, it's about the sad stuff I see in the world. I see a lot of sad stuff, and it's called Sad. So this is the song, Sad, the lyrics. I would perform it for you, but if you've seen my ukulele videos, you'd, you'd be thanking me. You're, you're just, just thank me. Move on. Getting my levels. Okay. Uh, picture a depressed onion cutting itself. I met a homeless man named Rich. Isn't that terrible? I saw a flyer for a lost dog, and the dog didn't have any legs. I saw a diabetic kid trick-or-treating. I saw a giraffe who had a short neck. That was sad. Or a deer. I saw an old man get hit by a train. He didn't see it in the pouring rain. He didn't hear me shout, look out for the train, because I didn't say anything. I just thought to myself, oh, this is going to be sad. And it was. I'm a genius. I saw a man with only one eye in a 3D movie. I saw a little boy drop his ice cream cone directly on his mother's corpse. I saw a kitten stuck in a tree. Then the kitten jumped off and he hung himself. I saw a boy who had red hair. I went to a store looking for something to buy but they only sold paintings of the same sad guy. No, wait, 
This store sells mirrors. See what I did there? Let's rock. No. The world's so sad, bros. Pain, war, genocide, racism, sexism. But I got to remember, there's good things about it, too. Like the fact that none of it's happening to me. Score. Still, though, it's hard not to be sad about it. How do you do it? How do you all do it? I've I've been telling you guys terribly sad things this whole song. And you haven't been sad at all. You've been happy. No, you've been laughing. That's it. Laughter is the key to everything. It's the way to solve all the sadness in the world. I mean, not for the people who are actually sad, for the people like us who got to fucking deal with them all the time. Being a comedian isn't being an insensitive prick, capitalizing on the most animalistic impulses of the public. It's being a hero. The world isn't sad. The world's funny. I get it now. I'm a sociopath. I saw an old man slip and fall. What a fucking idiot. I saw a woman at her daughter's funeral. Ha, ha, ha. Classic comedy. Everything that once was sad is somehow funny now. The Holocaust and 9-11, that shit's funny 24-7. Because tragedy will be exclusively joked about. Because my empathy is bumming me out. Goodbye, sadness. Hello, jokes. So be sure to drop a line to Bo Burnham and ask him, how you doing, bro? Are you okay? Tell him that the madman and you are both concerned about him. And this is, this is why I love that song, Sad. is because he literally makes fun. It's satire, obviously. It's obviously satire. And he is even satirizing satire in the song. And that's the level of Bo Burnham genius I've, I've kind of grown to expect. And maybe that's on me. Maybe that's the kind of pressure that's led him to uh, <laughs> have his, because the research I've done is he's had you know problems with social anxiety and panic attacks on the stage. And I can understand. I really can. I can understand. But I mean, you are capable, Mr. Burnham, of doing this kind of thing doing making this kind of le- this this level of art but i hope you get your stuff together because just for yourself i mean i don't care if your art sucks for the rest of your life you know just i hope you live a happier happier life anyway that's my bo burnham rant <laughs> okay all right hey, uh on a side note you ever get surprised by a spider in the bathroom and just like reach for the closest weapon you have like a like a like a sandal or a bottle of windex or a book you know, and you're just like, dog, killed the spider scrubbing bubbles. Anyway. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm mixing beers today. All right, so um, I don't know if you remember a movie called Waiting. <clears throat> if you've seen the movie called Waiting, uh, that probably means that you've worked in <laughs> the food service industry at some point of your life. And if you haven't, worked in the food service industry at some point in your life, you can go straight to hell. All right. I think that everyone, I think uh, what Daniel Tosh say best is like everyone, everyone needs to work uh, for the food or food service industry uh, uh, for like six months or something. So they can learn that your ranch dressing isn't that fucking important. All right. So, <laughs> and I think that's a, that's a really good thing. And I think a waiting kind of uh, explains that very well in, in you know, a series of, you know, uh, situations <laughs> don't fuck with people who fuck with your food, you know? Uh, anyway, so in waiting, uh, there's this game that all the boys seem to play in the restaurants called the penis showing game. They have to show, you know, they show their balls and or dick in this penis showing game. And then they get to humiliate, humiliate the other person for, you know, being a meat gazer, as they say. And, uh, if you, if you, uh, if you take that movie and you bring it into the, today's social climate and stuff like that, and you're dealing with a bunch of men and women working together around food, and uh, people are pulling their dicks out all the time to show it to each other, um, you got all sorts of sanitary issues. It's like, I'm going to call the health department. You know, you got somebody saying, I'm going to call the health department, or, oh, sexual assault, I don't want to see your penis. You know, all these soft, soft, offended people who just find, try to find things to complain about. They don't understand the purpose of something like the penis showing game. Now, I'm not sitting here saying that I want to see anybody's penis. I don't even want to look at my own. All right. But what I'm saying is that uh, at the end of the movie, 
the wise old dishwasher, explained how when Rodimus, uh, what's his name? God, uh, Luis Guzman, when he came to the, the, the store, <laughs> the restaurant, he brought along the penis showing game. And he started doing it. It's like in the, the restaurant was going through tough times. People weren't getting tips. You know, their cl- uh, clientele wasn't coming back. Cause, but he brought this game, you know, and everyone started, you know, laughing more and, like, cutting up more and being more loose. And that, you know, brought up the attitude, brought up the quality of service, brought up, the, brought up more customers in. And it was a good thing for the restaurant. All right? Like I said, I am not... I'm not saying that the penis showing game is the only only way to go about doing something like this, but you got to understand is like the the absurdity, the absurdity of it is the point, you know the the weird, bizarre, homoerotic nature of it is the point, you know. And somebody as simple as Luis Guzman's character Rodimus in that movie understood things like that. It's like that brings up camaraderie. If those of you have served in the military, if those of you have been in a fraternity or something like that, they have these like hazing rituals and stuff like that. And all this, all this stuff is is based around uh, group cohesion. You know, uh, I think the most famous movie where they talked about this kind of thing was in A Few Good Men, where they talked about the Code Red. The Code Red is that uh, where they beat some uh, some marine you know, who dropped his rifle or something like that. You know, it, it helps create camaraderie and in worse conditions and horrible conditions, somebody could get killed. Uh, but I mean, that was an extreme case for an extreme movie that was fiction, by the way. And so um, the point is, is that that kind of stuff, it creates uh, a looseness. And it's like, if you're, if, you're, uh, if you're beating on some poor guy who just made E4 or something like that, uh, you know, you can read the tone of his voice when he really starts getting it pissed. When when he start, starts getting to that, re- I'm really starting to get pissed point. You can hear it in his voice, and you you learn that tone. And it's like, okay, I don't push you that past that point. And that's that's the reason for all that kind of stuff. Now, I'm not saying to go out there and create your own penis showing game. Use the penis showing game as a metaphor for what you need to do to life. What you need to do in your world is like you need to look at the world and say, hey. We're all clowns, man. It's we're all clowns. What are you? You're clowns. Laugh. Have a good time. You know, and if a couple of 18-year-old <laughs> jackasses showing each other their cocks, uh, it's absurd and it's ridiculous. And it's just something to laugh at and move on. Avert your eyes if you don't want to see and move on. Don't be that person that's sitting there being, oh, I'm offended. Oh, I'm going to file a lawsuit. Oh, I'm so super litigious. American jurisprudence. Anyway, I just, I kind of miss those days because it seems to me that that movie takes place in the 90s. And when I was in, when I was in the 90s, that's when I was doing a lot of my food service work. And in the 90s, it's like, it was so cool. I mean, the music was shit because of like grunge and all that, but we truly were equal. It's the last time I remember where racial tensions, you know, where people didn't always have to talk about, you know, what they're, who they like to have sex with all the time. They describe themselves by all the people they want to have sex with or describe, describe themselves by their skin color, skin color, or their whole identity is built upon the makeup they chose, chose to wore that day. You know, we had, it was, it's it's so depressing to me that the music was so horrible, but America was so good in the mid to late 90s. I didn't know how good I had it. I really didn't. All I did was whine about Kurt Cobain. And I still do to this day. Anyway, we got one more segment to get into before we get into the news worth knowing. Uh, we're going to the mailbag. Got some emails over the last couple of weeks, so... Uh, uh, so we're going to catch up on the mailbag. And if you want, you can email me at madman, madman at fxbgpr.com. There it is on the screen for you. And uh, I, I can feature you in a mailbag. I won't use your email address, generally speaking, unless you want me to. <clears throat> Don't ask me to promote your shit because I'm not going to do that either. Anyway, uh, so let's go to this first email. Um, in, the, in the 15-June 21 episode of Random President... You talked about what if rain or snow happened all at once. 
And if that happened on Earth, people would start running when the clouds darken. There would be air raid sirens shouting, seek shelter. There would even be emergency shelters built all over cities. <laughs> Our history would be rife with stories of small towns being washed away in a sudden storm. People would get PTSD during thunderstorms. <laughs> Plus, all religion and history would be way different. In the Bible, you would have verses like, And lo, the skies did darken, and Eli sought a shelter in a cave where he got drunk and his kids saw him naked. <laughs> uh, they go on to say, hell, hell, maybe that's how Moses beat out those Egyptians. Red Sea reference. Duh. <laughs> And lo, the skies did darken, and Eli sought a shelter in a cave. Uh, yeah, you're right. Well, we talked about how, like, um, uh, yeah, how, like, the rain or snow just, like, all fell at once. Or even the leaves, like, all the leaves and all the trees just <laughs> all fell at once. You could have, like, Jesus praying in the garden, you know, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> and lo, God answered the prayer. Just <laughs> it's a sign. You're like Mac on the deck of the ship. I'm, just give me a sign, Lord. I couldn't get the timing right. <laughs> yeah, uh, you are correct, dear listener, watcher, viewer. You're correct. I uh, I guess I didn't think about that when I was writing that 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 bit. That bit. I should have gone into a deeper dive on it. I suppose. Good point. Good point. Um, next email is Madman. You ever want to do real no news show? Madman, you ever want to do a real news show? No, no. No, no, not at all. That's the short answer. The long answer is that I worked in journalism, and jur true journalism needs needs to be objective. Needs you need to verify like three sources. You need can't have any of this. You can't write a whole article on an unnamed source. All right. Modern journalism has moved far away from that sort of journalistic standard, and. The reason why they have moved away from that journalistic standard is because it's incredibly boring work, all right, to be objective. It's tedious and it's boring to be 100% completely objective and to verify three sources. Three, if you hear a story, you need three different sources. You need to get the New York Times, you need to get the Washington Post, you need to get a third source, all right? That's the journalistic standard. And so... That's why op-ed is why is has been taking over news ever since the information age has begun. Because op-ed is the only thing that's fun or interesting <laughs> about the news. And so, like, doing a real news show, if you're looking at... I mean, to be honest, um, uh, I, I think Tim Pool is probably the middle-of-the-roadest uh, person when it comes to getting your news, however, he's tedious and long-winded about certain subjects, and he's, he just wakes up every day hating Republicans for some sort of vestigial reason. Um, EK has expressed some interest in uh, doing some sort of uh, objective news show. It's, a, it's an extreme challenge. It's a really, really big challenge. So you could uh, get in touch with us through fxbgpublicradio.com if you're interested in doing something like that here through us. Uh, but generally, no, I'm not interested <laughs> in uh, doing a new show because it is a pain in the butt. All right. Um, uh, the next email is Madman, where did you go? W-H-H-E-R-E. -E. I assume you mean where. Madman, where did you go? I went on vacation, idiot. I think I still have one more vacation coming uh, this, up this summer. Uh, I probably won't warn you about that one either. Figure I do. All right, next email. Uh, hey, you ever seen that movie Waiting, Madman, about working in a restaurant? Yes. Yes, I have. I've seen that movie. All right, next email. Did you ever finish Gavin McInnes' book, Madman? Yes. What is up with the emails this week? I'm full. Yeah. It's crazy. All right, last, last email is Mamdan. What? Mamdan, M-A-M-D-A-N. Somebody has dyslexia. Ma'am Dan, have you seen Bone Burnham's new stuff? I'm worried about him. You know what? Me too. Me too. I don't know what's up with these emails, and uh, perhaps I could patchwork all these questions into topics for a show sometime in the future. Anyway, if you want to be featured in the mailbag, just email me at madman at fxbgpr.com. Otherwise, I'll just continue talking to myself. Let's go ahead and get to the news worth knowing.
All right. So I guess we got to talk about this Fuster Cluck. Uh, it's kind of a slow news week. And as news stories go, this is the story of the week. <laughs> Probably a month. <clears throat> Probably for months. Years, possibly. Anyway, U.S. evacuates more than 700 from Afghanistan's Kabul airport. And I don't know if you've been living under a rock or something like that, but I don't know what the hell happened. Because apparently, Joe Biden must have said, everyone just drop what you have in your hands and run. Let them have it. Uh, So since this is a top story, and I'm always using Fox News, uh, there's several stories that are related to it, obviously. So I'm going to read headlines and like the fast facts over here. And it's like Fox is real nice about organizing the information like this. I do like these top stories, the way they treat them. Um, so the State Department tells Americans in Afghanistan to shelter in place until they hear from the embassy. And you know what? I don't, I don't know what. Those Americans who are in Afghanistan right now is like, get out. Get out of there. Holy cow. And shelter in place is just, it's just terrifying. It's not like <laughs> you might go outside and, you know, uh, uh, catch COVID or something like that. Then you'll get sick and you have to go to a hospital. It's nothing like that. It's like shelter in place because you might get kidnapped or murdered. And so I, from what I understand, there are like, uh, like five figures, number of people, like 10,000 or so. Americans in Afghanistan still. All right, so, uh, and I don't know if you've uh, seen that video of the C-13. Anyway, uh, C-13 was taken off and a bunch of Afghani guys, all guys, lots of guys, no women. You know why? The women, because the women are at home like they're supposed to be, as the Taliban sees it. All right, so it's all dudes. And they're all hanging on to these C-17s as they're taking off and, pe- and falling off of them. All right? And in this, uh, this other fast fact here is human remains were found in a C-17 landing gear after a Kabul evacuation flight. It's, it's crazy. I don't know if, if they're that desperate to get out of Afghanistan with the Taliban in charge, and I think that that's probably the case. If the Taliban's in charge and America's just walking out the way that they are, people there must be terrified. Yeah, so here it is. Yeah, 11,000 Americans may still be within Afghanistan, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said today. Is she back from vacation? Because she went on vacation. All right, people are giving Jen Psaki a hard time about vacation. I know, you know, you got to schedule that with work, especially if you're the White House Press Secretary and stuff like that. It's like... You got to clear it by the boss. They got to sign some papers and stuff like, yeah, you could take a week off. It's like, then all of a sudden this breaks out. I mean, if she were really in contact with what, or in touch with what the administration was up to, she probably would have known this is probably a bad time to do this, Mr. President. Anyway, let's read some headlines of these uh, other stories here. Like former ambassador laments that Al-Qaeda is back. We've turned Afghanistan into our mortal enemy. Another headline: With Taliban victory, Afghanistan could be in a second school of jih- become the second school of jihadism. Taliban claims it's more moderate, but killings continue in Afghanistan. <laughs> Those the female journalists they would uh like the day before the, Tal- the U.S. left. You know they're all they're not wearing burqas or nothing like that. They're all showing their hair and stuff like that. The next day, they're in burqas. Because they know, they know what will happen to them. Anyway, State Department tells Americans in Afghanistan to shelter in place. Pompeo on Taliban takeover on, of Afghanistan. Biden administration didn't project American strength. That's the softest way to say that, dude. <laughs> anyway, Biden hasn't spoke to any foreign leaders since the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban. And uh, the human remains in Kabul, uh, the uh, the undercarriage of the uh, C-17. All right, that's an opinion. I'm going to skip that. Uh, Americans and Afghan interpreters trying uh, turning to Congress to help fleeing Afghanistan and the Taliban. 
Okay. So if you don't know, over the last 20 years, the U.S. has been fighting off the Taliban since 9-11. Okay. And we are trying to train this, uh, this Afghan force to deal to, to, to fight against their oppressors. But as soon as they learned the U.S. was out, everyone just like laid down their weapons and said, screw it, I'm joining the Taliban. And so the way they're spinning this is that it's a victory as soon as like as soon as all the American troops are out of there. It's like, oh, we overran. We overran the Americans. It's like, you know, it wasn't boots that did this. It was it was suits. It, it wasn't boots that did this. It was suits. All right. And the the situation in, Af- in, in Afghanistan is a complicated one, to be sure. But if these people don't want to fight against uh, the the horrible people in their in their lives, who are we to sit there and fight that fight for them? All right. Um, to hell with them. To hell with the Afghan people. You know, if they're if they're happier with their women subservient and stuff like that, who are we to go across another country's borders and try to do that? If if only to fight the Taliban, all right? And Biden was correct when he said that, you know, nation building is not the purpose of why we're there. The reason why the troops were there was to fight off the Taliban and keep them from doing something uh, as horrible as they did on 9-11 or even the USS Cole, you know? And that's why, that's why they ha- they, the, that was the mission in Afghanistan, Make no mistake, we're not there to help liberate women and educate women in Afghanistan because their culture doesn't want to do that, all right? And you got all these people who helped out the Americans when they were there, all right? A lot of them are going to get killed. A lot of them are going to get hurt and or killed brutally because of their uh, assisting the Americans. And because of the way we walked out of there, because of the way we just like dropped everything and ran, not only do they get a whole bunch of U.S. equipment, they get U.S. intel, all right, U.S. intelligence. They, uh, uh, they, I mean, we're, they're talking about helicopters and shit. And that's what the Taliban's getting. Whatever we left behind, they're going to get. And anyone who trusted the United States during that time will never trust the United States again. Not to say that they ever did in the first place. But also, any ally of the United States just wonders, is like, hey, if the shit shit hits the fan here in Germany, or if the shit hits the the fan here in Japan, is the U.S. military going to cut and run? Especially with the old puppet as president, an old liberal puppet as president? So, it's a complicated situation. I know that the the counterterrorism... activities that were going on inside Afghanistan. I know for a fact that it's all kind of based around U S air support and stuff like that. And, uh, and the Afghans didn't really have that kind of stuff. And so as soon as the, uh, the U S drones and the U S aircraft are all taken out, out of it, you know, it was like, it was just, uh, Taliban with guns versus, uh, and drones or whatever they have as well. And just, uh, the Afghan forces that we had been training and their their firearms, but they no longer have any command control. They have no no longer have air support. You know, maintenance. They don't have maintenance. So what else? What are they? What else are they going to do other than lay down their arms? Been training them for twenty years, and as soon as they were out, and the okay, well, I guess we're done playing this game. It was a bad call. It was a bad call, and Biden's administration. That's his legacy. That's his legacy. No matter what you want to say about him sniffing kids and all that shit, no matter what you say, this is his legacy. And it's a damn shame. Anyway, let's go to the next story, which is kind of based upon the same thing. Afghan director issues warnings of massacres, child brides, banned arts amid the Taliban takeover. A director from Afghanistan is issuing a warning of what could come in Afghanistan after the Taliban seized power two weeks before the U.S. was set to complete its troop withdrawal following a costly two-decade war. Sarah Karimi is the first and only woman in Afghanistan to hold a Ph.D. in cinema and filmmaking and serves as a general director of the Afghan Film Organization. She took to Twitter on Friday in a plea to the international film community to speak up about about protecting the people in the country. (coughs) 
quote, I write to you with a broken heart and a deep hope that you can join me in protecting my beautiful people, especially fil filmmakers from the Taliban. Karimi wrote in a lengthy memorandum, quote, uh, in the last few weeks, they have massacred our people. They kidnapped many children. They sold girls as child brides to their men. It's a humanitarian crisis, and yet the world is silent. They will ban all art. I and other filmmakers will be next on their hit list. In regards of the Afghan people, Karimi criticized the media and other humanitarian organizations for being silent uh, and abandoning those in Afghanistan with U.S. troops and citizens being pulled from Kabul. Quote, we have grown accustomed to this silence, yet we know it's not fair, she wrote. We know that this decision to abandon our people is wrong, and, this is, uh, and that this hasty troop withdrawal is a betrayal of our people, and all that we did with Afghans won the Cold War for the West. Karimi pressed in her decree that she anticipates young girls who are, attempting, who are attending school will likely be forced out under Taliban rule. Quote, our people, our people were forgotten then, leading up to Taliban's dark rule, and now, after 20 years of immense gains for our country, and especially our younger generations, all could be lost again in this in abandonment. I don't know if you were abandoned. You know, if, if your nation had the will to stop things like massacres, child brides, and banning art, if, if your culture had the will to do that, they would pick up their weapons and fight the Taliban on their own. We'd training you for 20 years. All right? I mean, obviously, I have sympathy for the human rights abuses that are happening in, in Afghanistan and are going to happen in Afghanistan for the next few months or years. All right. I also have my heart also goes out to the people in Hong Kong. All right. Who are now under the thumb of Chinese rule. My heart breaks for them. My heart breaks for the uh, for the person in China. Who works under the Chinese Communist Party. You know, but are, do, you, do you really expect America to invade China and kick out the com, uh, uh, Chinese Communist Party for the sake of the humanitarian rights of those Uyghur Muslims or the average Chinese uh, drone worker? Forgive me for calling them that. Is that what we should do? Is that what we should do? After all, we sat there and we trained the Afghanis for 20 years to fight against the Taliban, and we said, you're on your own. Granted, the way we did it was wrong, but they just, dropped their, they just dropped their weapons. They don't have the will. Your culture doesn't have the will to allow women to be educated, to fight for the right for women to be educated, to not be subjugated by these bizarre 8th century rules. All right? Your culture needs to go through a renaissance. You didn't go through a renaissance, and it's, it's kind of fucked you up. It's kind of left you in the backwoods of human society. No offense. But, I mean, if you, if you don't have the will, I mean, I'm sorry. I guess it's just different because we're, we're Americans, you know, and we understand that, you know, the blood, you know, blood had to be spent to fight for these rights. And if you've never known what it's like to have rights, I don't know. And the difference is, is that this woman has a, a PhD. Granted, it's in cinema and film, but she has a doctorate. All right? Unheard of. Unheard of among the strict Muslim uh, Islamists. Okay? Educated woman. You best run to the West because the West is the best. And, just, and they, want to, they will probably want to cut your head off simply because you are educated as a woman. Anyway, I know I, I know I might sound cold and stuff like that, but hey, 20 years and you guys still don't have the will to fight against people as crazy as the Taliban. And even though they're like Joe Biden is like a dipshit and I think that, you know, uh, U.S. military service should be a requirement before you can even run for an elected office, because anybody who has served in the military would have known that, that is a horrible idea. It's not, it, wasn't with the, it wasn't the problem with the boots. The problem was with the suits. It was people in Washington who have no idea what it's like to fight a war. And it's, it's clearly, it's just a couple, it's probably like Joe Biden and Jen Psaki really running the president with their hands up the, Joe Biden's back, running him. And it's probably just a bunch of women making these decisions. Well, let's just leave. We can just leave. We'll make a scene and leave. You can't thought that was funny. <laughs> anyway, 
Yeah, let's make a scene and leave. Anyway, I don't want to get ranting off too much. That was just two stories. We've got 15 minutes left. Anyway, so let's go to the next story. Uh, the nation's largest wildfire shifts towards California community due to gusty winds. Be safe, our California, my California friends. Be safe. Gusty winds drove the nation's largest wildfire towards a northern Cal- uh, California county seat as firefighters struggled to contain a month-old blaze amid forecasts of more dangerous weather. Afternoon winds, winds gusting at up to 30 miles an hour on Monday pushed the Dixie Fire within a few miles of Susanville and prompted evacuations orders for Janesville, a, near, a small nearby mountain community, fire officials said. Susanville, with about 18,000 people, is the seat of, it's a county seat of Lassen County in the largest city that the blaze has approached. The former Sierra Nevada logging and mining town has two state prisons, a nearby federal lockup, and a casino. Oh, my Lord. Moving those prisoners. Oh, that's gonna be a <laughs> that's gonna be a headache. Anyway, um, ash fell from the advancing fire, and a police department statement urged residents to be alert and ready for ready to evacuate if the fire threatens the city. Although no formal evacuation warning has been issued, bulldozers had cut fire lines in a path of north northward uh, trending blaze. But a lot of our lines are getting tested now. Fire spokesman J- Dave Jansen said, National Weather Service issued a fire. Uh, Fire weather watch through Thursday in the area because the afternoon winds could gust up to 35 miles an hour at times, propelling flames. That's 56 kilometers per hour, if you care. The weather forecast prompted Pacific Gas and Electric to warn it might cut off power to 48,000 customers in portions of 18 counties from, uh, from Tuesday evening through Wednesday afternoon to prevent winds from knocking down or hurling debris into power lines and sparking new wildfires. Most of those customers are in Butte and Shasta counties, which have seen a number of deadly and devastating wildfires in recent years, including the Dixie Fire. Investigations are continuing, but Pacific Gas and Electric has notified utility regulators that the Dixie and Fly fires may have caused, uh, may have been caused by trees falling onto its power lines. Dixie Fire began near the town of Paradise, which was devastated by a 2018 wildfire ignited by PG&E equipment during strong winds. 85 people died. Dixie Fire scorched more than 900 square miles in the northern Sierra Nevada and southern Cascades since it ignited on July 13th and eventually merged with a smaller blaze called the Fly Fire. It's less than a third contained by fire lines. Ongoing damage surveys have counted more than uh, 1,100 buildings destroyed, including 625 homes, and more than 14,000 structures uh, remain threatened. Numerous evacuation orders were in effect. Be careful, you know, they're going to talk about all these other counties and all these, how the fire got that big. <laughs> so, so be careful. You know, fire season is something that happens every year, you know. Be safe out there, Northern California listeners. All right, let's go on to this, this next story. Derek Chauvin prosecutors asked Minnesota judge not to release names of jurors amid harassment concerns. All right, let that sink in for a second. Prosecutors asked a judge Monday to reject a request by a coalition of media outlets to unseal the names of the jurors who convicted ex-Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin of the murder death of George Floyd, saying it could subject them to harassment and make it harder to see the jury for the trial of three co-defendants next year. Judge Peter Cahill has ordered earlier that the jurors' identities be kept secret for at least 180 days after the verdict. That's three months away. Chauvin, who is white, was convicted in April of killing Floyd, a black man, who was sentenced to 22 and a half years in prison. The media coalition, which includes the Associated Press, asked Cahill earlier this month to release the information immediately, saying there is no known threat to juror safety that would warrant keeping their names sealed. Attorney Lietta Walker said the media and the public have a right to information about a jury and that anonymous juries are rare and only allowed in exceptional circumstances, such as in cases involving gangs and organized crime. But lead prosecutor Matthew Frank argued it in a response Monday that courts have ample authority to preserve juror anonymity uh, from the, quote, substantial probability of harassment. 
He noted that Cahill in earlier orders made specific and detailed findings that jurors in the Chauvin case uh, could be subject to harassment or intimidation if their names became public too soon. And he said the media coalition is downplaying the risks. Quote, because of this case's international profile, the potential sources of harassment are, diff are diffuse and, and span the globe, Frank wrote. Once this court, he went on to say, releases juror material, that material will quickly appear in every corner of the Internet, including on social media and the darker corners of the web. Nefarious actors may exploit that information, harassing jurors in person or online. Two Chauvin jurors and one alternate have identified themselves and come forward to tell their story since the trial, while the remaining 10 jurors and one alternate have not. <clears throat> the media coalition this month also raised similar concerns about the decision by a different judge to keep jurors' names sealed in the manslaughter, in the manslaughter trial in November of former Brooklyn Center officer Kim Potter. Potter, who is white, fatally shot Dante Wright, a 20-year-old black motorist, on April 11th. <laughs> it's, it's just kind of crazy to me that the press would start asking for these names. The only reason why the press would ask for those names is to contact them, is to harass them. And I think that if you're a juror, no matter what the case, all right, no matter what the case is, if you're a juror, juror, you want to, I feel like you, you can only possibly be compelled to give what you really think is right as a verdict if you know you're not, without without being worried about the public perception of you all right i think generally uh, jurors should be anonymous i think that's why they say juror number one juror number two juror number three i think that's exactly why they do that they don't want to use your real names in courtrooms and in this day and age if you think that those jurors are not going to be harassed you are out of your mind. Anyway, I'm no, I'm no lawyer. What do I know? Anyway, so uh, let's go to the last two stories. Try to keep them happier and upbeat right at the end. So a Las Vegas boy is escorted to his first day of school by police after his uh, father's death from COVID. Uh, Las Vegas boy's father died of COVID-19 uh, received a surprise Monday when police officers came to his home to escort him to his first day of school. You think he was going to get jumped? It's like they, they said last year we're going to jump you on the first day of school. Anyway, I'm kidding. The officer's gesture honored Noah's father, Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department Officer Jason Swanger, who died from complications of COVID-19 in June. Nine-year-old Noah, his mother, Christina Swanger, and Las Vegas police officers Brennan uh, Childers and Dan Sutton joined Fox & Friends Thursday to discuss the heartwarming story with host Steve Ducey. Quote, he's an amazing kid, Officer Sutton said of Noah. He's got a big heart, too, just like his dad, and it's extremely important to us to see him go and be happy and live a wonderful life. Oh, enlarged heart? Is that what he, is that what he had? The kid has an enlarged heart, too? I, I, I don't understand this quote. Anyway. Anyway, three officers brought Noah to the first day of fourth grade at Steve Shore Elementary School and took photos with him before class. Uh, Noah greeted the officers wearing a tie, which his mom told him represented the, his new role as man of the house. Jeez, Louise. I don't know. Is that is it too soon to get into all that? Anyway, they've been just extremely supportive, Christina Swagger said. Noah's connection to his dad being a police officer, I think that's extremely important for him. Sure, sure. Officer, officer Childers remembers Swag, Swanger as a dedicated officer to his fellow military veteran community and someone who taught him the importance of work and family. He was a funny guy, an infectious laugh, and he was a blessing to have on the squad, Childers said. A really great guy. Sutton added Swanger had a humongous heart. See, there it is again. And would have done the same for anyone else's child. Krista described her husband's squad as a family that stepped up for Noah after his father's passing, including surprising him with a truckload of presents on his birthday and taking the time to have lunch with him just like his dad did. Aww. That's, that's a sweeter story, if you ask me. Swanger was 41 years old and a seven-year veteran of the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. Noah wants to be a police officer when he grows up. You know, you could sit there and say, it's like, oh, this is cops looking out for cops, and that's what they do. And it's like, yes, they do do that. But, I mean, that's any, any community. 
you know, even ex-military people, you know, it's like, I think we did a story like a couple of years ago where there's some veteran who died and there was no one at his funeral. Someone just put it out there on social media, you know, it's like, Hey, there's this veteran where we're going to be burying or something like that. And just ex-military people from all over the country just came to this anonymous veterans funeral. And that's just how, how a community like the police, you know, or the military, that's how they are, you know? And I think that that's a good thing. I think it's one of the uh, finer aspects of humanity. So, I mean, I just, <laughs> I, I, I make jokes. It's like, oh, he has a large heart. Oh, he was going to get jumped on the first day of school. <laughs> you know, I make jokes, but it's, it's, really, it's really very sweet. It's really very sweet. Anyway, let's go to this last story. Family re- reunites with NYPD officers who saved unconscious infant son. They're blessed by God. A family says they were blessed by God when New York police officers helped resuscitate their five-month-old son in Brooklyn earlier this month. Quote, we're super grateful that we ran into you guys when we did and, we're, and, you, and that we were able to save this little kid's life. Sean Echevarria, the father of Zine Echevarria, said in a video on the families reuniting with the officers. Oh, gee, he is so cute. Oh, my gosh, he is a really cute kid. <laughs> I just saw the picture. Uh, quote, thanks to you guys, like, we really lucked out. We were really blessed by God in that moment. Three officers identified as Officer Reese, Bates, and Keller of the 84th Precinct were investigating a burglary in Brooklyn on August 5th and were informed that Sean Echevarria was holding his unconscious son. Body cam footage shows the officers performing C- CPR on the infant, and they earned adulation from NYPD brass to, for saving the young child, who has since made a full recovery. Uh, quote, the officers immediately sprung into action and began to render aid to the infant until further medic- medical assistance arrived. The officers' actions helped save the infant's life and has made a full recovery. Keep up the excellent work and stay safe, NYPD Chief of Department Rodney Harrison tweeted earlier this month. When five-month-old Zane Echevarria was choking, uh, he needed medical attention right away. Thankfully, officers from, from the NYPD 84PCT were on the scene to help. Our officers learned CPR for moments like this, and training, and their training saved little Zane's life. Chief of Patrol Bureau Juanita Holmes said in a tweet on Monday, showing the mother, father, and son reuniting with the three officers. You know... Stuff like this happens, you know, and just imagine being the panicked parent running out into the street of New York. Your child isn't breathing. And thank God you run across a police officer who was trained. It's like all of them, all these cops, I think they're required to be trained in doing CPR like like uh, normal people and the, the, the tiny squishy ones. I mean, I've looked into, I, I've, I've been CPR uh, certified in the past. I don't like it, you know, touching people. And so, um, but uh, I've also looked into getting like a CPR certified for an infant. And I mean, that's a whole different process. It's kind of the same principle. And just, you know, squeeze and pop that out, you know, basically. <laughs> and so, uh, um, you know, they all have to be trained in, in these procedures because you don't know, you could be investigating some burglary in Brooklyn. Some dad comes running at you with a five-month-old cute baby turning purple, and you save his life. You know, you could, you could talk all you want, talk all the trash you want about cops, but, you know, that's really what they're there for. It's like when there's no one, no one else to turn to, you want to say, it's like, hopefully you could turn to the cops. Hopefully you can turn to the cops. Anyway, we're going to end the show. We went a little, a little bit over. I was able to, I had a few weeks off, so I was able to write a lot for you. <laughs> so I want to remind you again to go over to patreon.com slash shockmonkeyradio. Become a patron. Sign up. Send me some money. I would appreciate it. And if you, got, if you don't want to do that, you can do the cash tag. Use hashtag shockmonkeyradio. You can follow me over here on social media. I got Twitter. I got Facebook. And I got Instagram. You can check me out there. And so, yeah, I want to remind you to buy my books. Search for Scott L. Robbins, the author Scott L. Robbins with two T's and two B's. I have books up there for digital download on Amazon.com. Search for The Bunny Years, a memoir. 
The Ravings of a Madman, and the Exit 13 series. Make sure you read them in order. You'll be very confused otherwise. Uh, I want to remind you again to go check out fxbgpublicradio.com. See all that we have to offer and, you know, try to, you know, interact with us. Go to my YouTube channel. Go to Shock Monkey Radio YouTube. Interact with us. Chat. Type in, type into the, like, some comments. Interaction helps me, and I'll probably respond because I have nothing better to do from, <laughs> from, from Tuesday at 7 p.m. to Tuesday at 5.30 p.m. All right, get in here and start drinking beer. So thank you. This has been Shock Monkey Radio. I am your host, the Madman, and I love you.